Hi everyone, I am Kate Warren. I am a freelance French horn player based out of New Haven, Connecticut. And I do a lot of educational outreach stuff through largely social media, mostly Instagram and TikTok. I also do a lot of research into gender and equity in brass playing. And I'm really excited to be talking with Cassidy today about all things brass playing. Yay! So happy to have you here. Um, usually I just start off by um, getting a sense of everyone's background um, when I start these interviews. So what got you started in music in the first place? So I was, I never wanted to be in band, actually. I wanted to take an art class. But both of my parents are artists. My mom's a painter, my dad is a printmaker. And they said, no, you have to take one year of band. So in the sixth grade, I had to take one year of band. And I, I picked the French horn, I closed my eyes and picked the one that sounded really pretty. <laughs> and maybe to my parents' dismay, maybe not, like 15 years later, I'm still doing band because evidently I liked it quite a bit. <laughs> well, then it was just a fate from your parents. You can just credit your parents for the rest of your life. That's awesome. Yes, it, it, it worked out really well for me. <laughs> That's so great. Um, so you talked a little bit about, you know, kind of, you just kind of randomly stumbled into horn and that sort of thing. So like what made you want to become a musician and major in music in college? Obviously I, I fell in love with band really quickly. I made a lot of super close friends in my middle school band program. When I went to high school, those friends, actually all of them <laughs> went to a different school. And I was still in band. I still really liked being there, but I didn't have that super tight-knit friendship circle that I'd had previously. So I just started practicing. Like somebody, uh, my, one of my middle school band directors had actually, I was so bad at the French horn, she asked me to switch instruments to the trumpet because it would be a little easier for me because I was mm -hmm. pretty bad at hearing pitches. And that, it got me thinking. I was like, man, like, I, if I actually want to be okay at this, I have to practice. And when I got mm -hmm. to high school, I had all this extra time because I didn't have any friends. <laughs> so I would, <laughs> I would spend my lunch times practicing in the band room and I would eat lunch and I would talk to the people who ate lunch in the band room and I would go practice and I would practice and I really liked it. And then it was, hey, time to pick what you want to major in college in. And it was math or music. And as good as I was at math, music was just a lot more fun. Yeah. Yeah. That's so funny. I'm terrible at math. So like, we're like opposites. I was not that I was like, got bad grades or anything. I just hated math. <laughs> so it's pretty clearly obvious for me um, where to go into, but that's, that's really interesting. I mean, usually people are like, like music for like the social aspect of it when they're in school and you were like, I got more time to practice. <laughs> I I'm definitely one of those weird musicians. I I've said this a lot the past year. It's like, I'm not, I'm not here for the concerts. I'm not here for the performances. And that's part of why I do so much, like how to practice, how to get better mm -hmm. uh, on social media. It's like, I love that stuff. That is what I live for. I, I want to sit in a windowless room and just work on playing the same note a hundred times exactly the same way. That's really fun for me. And I know that's not true for everyone else. So yeah, we need more <laughs> people like Kate, man. We need <laughs> and I feel like, that's that's very much the mentality of a lot of pianists because they have to be like 
I am totally fine with practicing eight hours a day in a practice room and closing off from everybody else. You kind of have like that mentality, but in a healthy brass playing way, not in a, I'm going to hurt myself way because I've seen your social media posts and they're really awesome. We're going to dive into all of that stuff. Um, Before we get there though, can you talk a little bit about your um, college experiences um, being a horn major and talk a little bit about if if they were mainly positive or negative or kind of a grab bag. What was your college experience like all the way through? So um, I am am on my third college experience at this point. (laughs) I did did my undergrad at Florida State with studying with Michelle Stiebelton. And obviously that's a very large state school Mm -hmm. with a lot of access to resources, both within and outside of the College of Music, which was amazing. Like, I, I truly loved my time at FSU. I did my master's degree in New York at the New School with Eric Rolski. And I mean, uh, talk about black and white differences in institutions there, going mm-hmm. from a large quasi-rural state school to a small private conservatory on 14th Street in Manhattan. And it threw me for a loop. Like it was, it was very different. Instead of having 32 people in my studio, there were seven. Mm. And like the music school was an eighth the size. And I'm obviously I live in New York and all of that, the adjustment period there was kind of shaky. But once I got my footing, I really like, I loved living in New York. I loved working with Eric. I loved being in the small environment. Um, I tend, I tend to think the new school is kind of one of those park and practice schools which mm-hmm. as I've just mentioned, was great for me. <laughs> exactly what I, what I needed. Yes. Of course, um, pandemic happened, graduated on Zoom, left Manhattan because COVID. And now I'm in Connecticut doing a second master's degree at Yale, which is this fun balance of the, the two because Yale is huge and has all these like resources and everything just like a large state school would have. But our school of music is very small and very incubated in this similar way to a conservatory. So I I feel like I've kind of gone through the the gambit of all three possible uh, college experiences. Yeah, that's awesome. And, and I think that allows you to have kind of an interesting perspective because some folks, you know, spend their time in their entire education in a very small conservatory setting or the opposite. And they're in a large state school with a huge program. So I think that's very interesting that you kind of have this sort of eclectic sort of music collegiate experience. That's really, really sweet. So you decided to get your second master's at Yale um, what kind of made you make that decision? I, uh, I I finished my master's degree. I graduated on Zoom. I mm-hmm. at that time I had moved down to Florida to help my parents like with groceries and things they were afraid of doing at the beginning of the pandemic. Yeah. And I, I essentially I was stuck in Florida again. I had a, I had a little bit of work, but it wasn't. I didn't have the lifestyle that I wanted to have, like entering my professional career. So pandemic still going on. As we know right now, pandemic is still going on. <laughs> it seemed like a smart move to just park myself at another institution, ride out a couple more years, get like that much better at what I do, that much better at my craft. And hopefully by the end of this degree, maybe uh, the world will open back up and there'll be concerts mm-hmm. and auditions and opportunities. Yeah. I mean, yeah. Use the time as, as, as efficiently as you can, for sure. I think that's a very smart strategy there, especially since that 
you know, this whole first half of the pandemic, I, I would, I like to think we're in the end of it, but I don't know. Nobody knows. Um, I've stopped saying that sentence. (laughs) But that like whole first shutdown era, nothing was open in music. No one was auditioning. I think people are slowly starting to kind of sort of think about it. And then of course, and then there's like another variant and they're like, oh wait, nope, never mind. Um, But I think that that is a smart strategy to have in that you're like, okay, I'm just going to continue my education, keep practicing, get better and, you know, keep moving forward in that way. So I think that's, that's really smart of you to, to do that. And, and yeah, so I was just curious to see like what the little motivation was um, behind that second degree. Um, So you're at Yale right now. So that's, you know, a little bit a part of your professional life, but what does the rest of your professional life look like? So Connecticut is actually still very COVID conscious. So none of the orchestras up here are having seasons, but the majority of what I'm doing so by that, I mean, I'm not really freelancing at all right now, mm-hmm. yeah. which is what it is. But because of that, I'm doing a lot more teaching than I ever thought I would do. Um, I've like five years ago, if you had told me I would love being an educator, I would have laughed at you. <laughs> And uh, I I teach a lot of drum corps, which I've always done and I've always enjoyed. But through the pandemic, I've started teaching a lot more private lessons, a lot more like small group master classes and things like that. And I found this absolute love for teaching outside of the traditional classroom setting. So I'm I'm teaching a lot of lessons. I had gave several research presentations over the past year on gender and equity, and I'm currently trying to hone in uh, the research study that I did in combination with those presentations to actually publish my paper. They all come from this paper that I've been endlessly working on, but (laughs) I'm working on actually getting it published in a couple journals this year. So that's that's the next, next big thing. Yeah. And let's, let's talk a little bit about your research and these presentations that you did. So you've had, um, well, you presented your first topic quite a few times, and then you also had a second presentation, like kind of sort of a part two. Um, So your first sort of presentation was titled Female Brass Players Don't Exist. And then you kind of moved into where are the women in brass academia? So can you talk a little bit about maybe what inspired this research? Obviously, for me, it's very obvious what inspired this research, but you know, some people may not be aware of the inequities in brass playing fully as we are, because we live it, and some other people might not be as aware. Um, so can you talk a little bit about kind of what inspired this research? Um, what do you have found in your own research? And you know, why you feel the need to, to present it as much as you can um, and, and even get it published, like you're saying right now. Of course. So um, for any listeners who aren't brass players or for that point, just aren't wind players, there's a gargantuan gap in gender representation in brass playing. Um, The majority of brass players are men. And particularly when you're looking at the majority of brass players with like real jobs, full-time jobs, uh, 401k kind of jobs, the the disparities between gender there are incredible. Mm -hmm. In my first lecture series, I looked at gender in the context of the professional orchestra. So I looked at American orchestras and a couple European ensembles to compare the ratios of men and women playing brass instruments. And, And 
only only 31% of the major symphony orchestra is comprised of women just in general, but when you boil it down and look at the actual brass sections, it's I don't remember the exact statistic right now, but it's like 13 or 12. It's very very low. Mm-hmm. However, the statistics actually get so much worse when you compare just the general like top 100 major symphony orchestras in the world versus like the top 20. And when you start looking at that creme de la creme upper echelon of orchestral playing, the ratio there are, there are almost no women in those sections, particularly no principal players. Like uh, I think in the past 40 years there have been something like 30 or 32 women who've won horn playing jobs in the United States and of the past 40 years only two of them have been principal players which which is just horrifying mm-hmm. so then my second second lecture series which is based off of the research study that i did i replicated a study that was done in the 90s which looked at every accredited institution in the united states so every college conservatory that teaches music that's accredited by NASM. So I I replicated the study looking at the the gender of brass faculty members. And um, currently about 49.1% of college university level professors are women, but only 31% of music faculty are women. Mm -hmm. However, what I found in my research study was that 14% of brass faculty members were women. So even though we have like 31% of music faculty being women, that that statistic drops 50% when you start looking at brass faculty. I then contacted 122 current brass faculty members at accredited institutions in the United States. And um, they, they, I sent them a survey, they filled it all out, they sent me all these responses. And I had about an 80% response rate to the women that I had sent the survey out to, which is that sample size of 122. And I found just like horrifying, more horrifyingly low statistics. Largely, I was looking at the relationships of if they had ever worked with other women, if they were the only woman who taught in their department. Um, one of the statistics that I found was that 35% of them were the first woman to teach any brass instrument at their institution mm-hmm. ever which is wild and um zero of them had ever or currently worked with more than one additional brass faculty member that was a woman so although we we are seeing traction compared to the study that was done in the 90s it's it's nominal gains compared to statistically speaking the number of women that are entering music the number of women that are receiving degrees in music which is higher than the number of men actually more women i think 53% of music degrees are given to women including masters degrees doctorates stuff like that it's not a lack of education it's a lack of employment yeah that's a huge disparity and and um as you were talking about um, these statistics, it kind of brought me back to when I was doing some research on K-12 education, particularly band programs and the um, gender um, disparities in, in, in instrumentation, right? Like we know this to be fact 
most brass instruments, actually all brass instruments are male dominated, some more than others. Um, a lot of woodwind instruments are female dominated, unless you start talking about things like the saxophone, um, but things like that. I was kind of looking at those disparities there. And then I started looking at program numbers. And like the thing that kind of stinks about this research, it is, is it very much pushes the binary. And we also have to acknowledge that is that a lot of times like non-binary people are not included in these statistics, which is very unfortunate. And I think we're going to start trending towards actually including them in statistics because they should be right. They're people too, but unfortunately, if I may actually Cassidy. So, uh, you, you've watched my original lecture and maybe you mm-hmm. noted the change in language I used yeah. in the second one, because after presenting female brass players don't exist, I, I received messages. I was like, hey, that's exclusionary. And I was like, mm-hmm. oh, you're right. It's really hard to do gender research and not be constricted into the gender binary. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And so, and you know, it's, it's not even like a, a discredit on any, anyone's current effort, because I think people that are researching now, like yourself, like myself, I, I acknowledge that in my research, it's just hard when you look back on research from probably that study that you were looking mm-hmm. at from the nineties, it's all pushing the binary. And so what I was noticing is a particular study was looking at high school enrollment in different high school music programs. And so I was specifically looking at the band portion of the study, but it looked at orchestra and choir. And women, female identifying students, outnumbered male identifying students in pretty much every high school band program, no matter what the sort of socioeconomic status of the school was. Um, So women were outnumbering men in these ensembles at the high school level. And then all of a sudden there's this giant like flip around as we go into the professional world. And so there's like this big looming question of what is happening in college education and what is happening in employment that is discouraging women from getting these jobs, from succeeding in music, from becoming professionals, for getting hired, for, you know, you're talking about the full-time 401k jobs, like what is happening. And so this was kind of just spurring this whole um, investigation into what's going on in the professional world. And it's obviously bringing up issues like inequity and representation and community and things like that. And so for you on a, on a personal basis, when you are looking at your research and, and what you have found, what do you think are those issues that are discouraging women or preventing women or creating these barriers um, to get into places of employment like we're talking about. One of the things that I talk about at the end of my lecture, and for those listeners, if you haven't heard this lecture, it's available to watch for free on YouTube and on my website. You can find it at www.katewarrenmusic.com research research. <laughs> um, but the the last part of that is talking about how we can how we can change things, how we can push the audition process, how we can push our hiring processes, how we can just do anything to have more inclusion happening. And it's no secret that in classical music, we we exist with a lot of old ideas and old formats on thinking about what makes a brass player, what makes a musician, um, something that the symphony orchestra has that most regular workplaces don't have is no set retirement age. Mm-hmm. The The average age of an American orchestra musician is 
over 50. It's between 50 and 70, actually. But like the average worker in any given industry is much, much younger than that. So because our turnover rate is slow, we fail to move and develop and, oh, what's the word? Innovate. We, we fail mm-hmm. to be to be evolving into institutions that are more inclusive. Yeah, that's an interesting point. And I've never even thought of that before, but that is so true. You know, usually people talk about, you know, making audition processes more equitable, like you had mentioned and things like that. And, you know, how we can um, encourage more women brass players to come out of secondary education and encourage them to take auditions and support systems and all sorts of organizations that provide those things um, that we can talk about. But that is a very interesting point that I've never heard anybody bring up. And that is so right. There is no retirement age. I, like I know, I know brass is, uh, brass players that are sitting in orchestras right now that I've met that are like 70 something years old. <laughs> Oh, yes. They're still I, there. <laughs> I, I absolutely love my professor here at Yale, Bill Purvis. Um, he's 82. Yeah. <laughs> Statistically speaking, he, he should have retired 20 years ago. But in music, we don't do that. We, we teach and we play until we can't anymore. And that, that's a bigger conversation about how most musicians have no separation between self and career. Mm-hmm. But I can talk all day about how we can change the institutional hiring policies and we can change the audition process. But at the end of the day, there's plenty of ingrained sexism that's just going to have to, uh, I'm using air quotes here, age out of the industry. They're, they're going to have to retire before we can really change what's happening. I mean, if there's no job opening, then they're not looking for anybody. That's such a, yes. such a good point. Yes. And, and, you know, and that's something that we notice a lot. And I mean, I think like right now, I think with the pandemic and everything and, and hopefully when it becomes an endemic and we're kind of like over this hump, I think there will be a little bit more orchestra jobs than there normally are just because I think people are going to be like so sick of us. They're going to be like, I want to retire. And that's, that's happening in education all over the place. Teachers are dropping like flies. and There's going to be so many teaching openings that that's going to be crazy. Absolutely. So not as much as education, but I think there will be a little bit more. But that doesn't really address the problem, right? Like that, that there is no retirement age. There is not anyone kind of knocking on their door saying, hey, you're going you gonna to retire soon? We want, we want to hire somebody else. Hello? No one's knocking on their door to do that. Um, and, you know, there are, there are players that play well past where they should be playing. Um, and I, I do agree that, that that is a major issue. And, and I think another issue that I've come across is, you know, a lot of orchestras have gotten better about blind auditions. I'm pretty sure that blind auditions are, are, are pretty much the standard now across the board, which is great. However, there's usually a resume round or a tape round. Yes. Can we guarantee that either of those things are blind? Absolutely no, not. No, you cannot. I have a friend who is a tuba player. She's a female identifying tuba player. And her first name is a very feminine name like yours. You can pretty much assume that she's a woman when she sends in a resume. And she has told me multiple times that she cannot tell you how many times she puts a resume through to apply to get an audition at an orchestra and they deny her and she needs to have her teacher write the orchestra a letter saying, please let my student audition. She's amazing. And she's studied at some of the best music schools in the country. She has an incredible resume. She's played with so many professional groups and they're probably looking at her name 
and when she was born because she's young and they're going like, no, no, bye-bye, see you later. And it happens to her all the time. So we, while we're saying, you know, blind auditions are great, they are a great thing that used to not be a thing and it caused a lot of issues, right? And we all know this. I think that all the rounds need to be blind, including a resume. What What's to say we can't cross out the person's name and just look at their qualifications and say, hey, we're interested in hearing this person. Why does it matter what their name is or their gender or their sexuality or their race or whatever? Why do we care? I I love all of that. And actually, several of the points you just made are near verbatim words that have come out of my mouth (laughs) talking about this previously. and actually an interesting point to bring up about the blind audition process is a, there was a research study done when it started becoming commonplace to, to prove if it was effective or not. Mm-hmm. And it was effective in the hiring of racial minorities, not in the hiring of gender minorities, actually. Mm. I think I, I speak about it in my first lecture and I would have to go back and review my materials to know the real statistic. but. I want to say it was somewhere around a 30% increase in hiring mm-hmm. of Hispanic, Latino, and Black. I did Black. Um, I think it was all musicians. I, I almost want to say strings, but I think it was all musicians in the blind audition process. Mm-hmm. But the when statistically altered to account for the fewer number of women auditioning, there was only like a 10 or 13% increase in the number of women being hired through the blind audition mm-hmm. process. So... Although there are many, uh, it's like, it's a double-edged sort of argument of, oh, like you can make everything blind. Like, just like you said, make the resume round blind. Like, why do you need a name to know if you want someone to audition for you? Mm-hmm. But there's also that argument for make none of it blind because it's already not blind. It, mm-hmm. it, there's, no, there's no thing, no real blind audition. Yeah. You can, you can tell if someone is, speaks in a, higher tessitura based off the way they breathe. Like there, yep. there are hundreds of little ways that you can discriminate against a woman in a blind audition. Yep. And unfortunately, you don't even have to be doing it consciously. Like there, there's that ingrained sexism, that ingrained prejudice that you don't even have to be thinking about it, but somewhere in the back of your head, unknown to you, you heard that breath and you heard that it was probably from a woman and you don't know why, but something about this candidate just is not as good as the last candidate you heard. It's just gut feeling, you know? Yeah. The (laughs) implicit bias. Yeah. Yeah. For sure. Yeah. And I, um, I had a conversation and in a previous episode with Joanne Lamolino, she uh, plays second trumpet in the Hawaii Symphony Orchestra. And she told me when she was taking auditions, she used to wear weighted shoes because mm-hmm. she is, I, I want to say five foot two. She's shorter than me. I'm five, four. She's smaller than me. Um, and so she knew that her footsteps, because it was a blind audition. She's behind a screen. She said she knew her footsteps were going to different. be too light. Yep. And that they were going to assume that she was a woman based upon her footsteps. And so she would wear heavier shoes to make herself sound heavier. And it's things like that, that you sit there and go, men do not have to worry about this. <laughs> we just have to worry about so many extra things to stress ourselves out. I mean, I've been told do not wear jewelry, nothing that mm-hmm. clinks. Um, yeah. Heavier footsteps do not wear heels. Do not wear anything that sounds like a lifted shoe because they can hear all those things and they can there make are, There are so many elements 
that I think about and I, I kick myself every time I think about it too. It's like, I shouldn't have to think about that. I shouldn't have to consider how I'm going to sound walking on the carpet. I shouldn't have to consider what my breath sounds like, or if I happen to cough or sneeze, what kind of impact that would have there. It's a reality that women in any field have to think about in almost any walk of life that we shouldn't. Yeah. And what I've been noticing recently is a lot of orchestras that that are hiring for positions, whether it's a sub job or, you know, an actual position is a lot of them are requiring tapes because of COVID understandable. A lot of people aren't holding live auditions. They don't want to cattle call like 200 trumpet players into a space, Mm -hmm. but they're not audio recordings, they're video, which I understand because they want to make it you know, more fair. So people don't really edit. It's like a clean cut one take video, but at the same time, how are you guaranteeing that people are just listening to it and not watching it and not judging the person that they're seeing? They're totally watching it. So how does that make it more equitable than a blind in-person audition? It doesn't. So there's like all these factors that are going on right now. And I mean, my partner, he's a trumpet player and he's, he sent tapes to orchestras recently. And I'm like, you're filming yourself and you're submitting that to, to someone. And that's something he doesn't have to worry about because he's a white male and you know, he is, you know, a dime a dozen. Right. Um, But that's something that he doesn't really have to necessarily worry about, but someone like us may have to worry about those things. So it's, it's, it's a really weird space to be in to have to consider all these things and think about them and and just trust people to to have the best intentions and and not operate off their implicit bias but the problem is everybody has implicit bias (laughs) yes no matter what absolutely yeah i completely agree and you know when we're when we're talking about all these issues Orchestra-wise, you had mentioned that you work with, um, you've played in DCI for for multiple years. I believe you played uh, in DCI uh, bands for four years, I believe? Four four years. I marched two years with the Boston Crusaders and two with Carolina Crown. And you still help teach drum and bugle corps. Um, So that is another institution, DCI in general, that is very male dominated. And I've had multiple women come on my show and talk about their experiences in DCI. And some of them were positive and some of them were negative um, because of those gender disparities um, that do occur in DCI. And and I have many friends that have marched DCI, both men and women and non-binary folks um, that have had all different experiences. Um, So can you talk a little bit about your experiences in DCI when it comes to that sort of gender representation issue? Absolutely. Um, it, it is no secret to anyone that there are next to no women marching brass instruments in mm-hmm. drum corps. I, I did a show with an all-women brass ensemble feature, and there were still only 14 in our horn line. And that was that was a huge deal. It was so hard to find 14 women who could join us for that ensemble mm. because there's that few number of women marching in the activity. But that exact reason, um, through through my four years at two different drum corps, collectively with three different staffs in each caption, so three different visual staffs, three different brass staffs, I had four women teachers. Mm. About one a year. Actually, they weren't, two of them were in the same year, so there was a year I didn't have any women teach me in any caption which is why I went into teaching <laughs> mm-hmm. because there are just, there's so few women doing the activity. And part of that's because there are no women teaching in the activity. 
And something the listeners may not know about me, I teach I teach brass at the Blue Stars right now, but I also teach visual at the Academy, the Arizona Academy. And before that, I taught visual at Carolina Crown. I got my start teaching visual and drum corps because the few women that are teaching teach brass. Mm-hmm. And I had had zero women teach me how to march. So I thought, okay, I'm going to teach people how to march because then they they will have a woman in front of them, a woman instructing them. Maybe the women in my horn line will think, oh, I can teach too. Because there was a point in my marching career where I went, well, there are no women teaching, which means I'm not going to be able to teach. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Funny how that worked out. But <laughs> it is a large part of why I am so heavily involved in the pageantry arts. I also teach a lot of marching band, a lot of college band, WGI, indoor, DCA, I work with the Connecticut Hurricanes right now as well, is to put that female face in front of our members to show them like, yeah, women can teach too. Women can be competent, eloquent educators, and you can do that too if you want to. Yeah. That That's a very important part of my my pillars as an educator. Yeah, I mean, me, me as well. I, I As you were talking about the lack of female teachers you had in that program. I mean, I, you know, I started band in fourth grade and went all the way through and I had one female band director the entire time. She was my seventh grade band director and we had a different band director for each grade level. So that's, (laughs) that's how many band directors I've had. And only one was a woman. And, uh, when, uh, you know, studying privately in trumpet, I've never had a female trumpet teacher ever always have been men. Um, and I've been fortunate in the past two band director jobs I've had in that I replaced a woman. Um, so my kids never had like a weird sort of, oh, who's this lady in front of us? Because they were used to having a woman mm-hmm. directing them, which I've been very fortunate to have. But I also know women who've had an opposite experience and they've replaced a man and had a lot of issues, especially with older students um, in like a high school marching band program. Um, but I've been very lucky in that I replaced a woman who had been there for a very long time. So these kids are used to seeing a, a female face in front of them. But it is definitely a rare thing to have that. I mean, and when we're talking about research, only 15% of uh, high school band directors are women. 15%. And actually it's even smaller at the university level. I believe it's only like five to 10% of women involved in, in band programs at the university level are women of, of all the band directors. So it, it does shrink a lot. Um, most women in music education are at the primary or middle school band director level. Um, and then it just kind of just cuts off from there, drops um, pretty significantly. And my, my perception of that is that a lot of um, when people are hiring for band directors, um, they view women as caregivers, right? Which is our, you know, stereotypical gender role view of what women are. And so a lot of times they get put into primary education jobs or working with younger kids because we're seen as those caregivers, whereas, you know, high schoolers, they need an authority figure, blah, 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 blah. And they throw a man up there. Um, And so for me personally, I think just being who I am and being in my job is, is providing that representation. Like you were mentioning for yourself, one of the reasons why you got involved. And that's one of the reasons I, why I got involved. And I said, you know what, I want to be a high school band director. <laughs> I want to be that person um, that I never had. Um, and, and for some women, it's, it's, kind of is a motivator at a young age when they see the lack of women in the professional field to be like, I want to change that. But it's also, 
can be discouraging at the same time for other women. Um, so I'm hoping that, you know, people like me and people like you and, and more people involved in these male dominated fields that are women can start to sort of turn the tide and encourage more women to pursue, you know, our positions professionally. Very well put. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So talk a little bit about DCI um, and, and the orchestra orchestra world. Um, let's talk a little bit about your social media presence, because that's how I found you. (laughs) (laughs) Um, so I kind of stalked your Instagram a little bit with the podcast account. Um, but I love your Instagram by the way, and I know you you have a wonderful website as well. Um, but what I really like is you provide very practical ways for people to tackle issues in the practice room that they may view as impossible. I think a lot of people go into the practice room wanting to tackle everything and anything and all their problems all at once, especially young players, and they get very stressed and it's very overwhelming. And you're very practical in how you approach everything. And you provide so many wonderful tips and, you know, it's all free stuff, which is great. Everybody likes free stuff. Um, But you have such a great presence on social media and it's so positive. Um, So can you talk a little bit about kind of like what motivated you to start posting the things that you post on your social media and kind of what sort of connections have you made um, um, from having your social media presence that you do? Well, thank you. Thank you for all those kind words. (laughs) That's what I do. (laughs) So I, I started Kate Warren Music essentially just so I would actually listen to the recordings I made of myself in the practice room. I was making the recordings, but I would never, they would live on my phone forever. I would never listen to them. I'm guilty of that as well. Yes. (laughs) I made Kate Warren music. I'm like, I'm going to post a video of my playing every couple days. And if I'm going to post a video of my playing, that means I have to listen to it. (laughs) So it, it served that that was its only purpose in, in its origin. And eventually I, I began posting like excerpts and etudes that I was working on. And people started asking me like, oh, like, how are you, how are you working on that? Like, how, how do your articulations get that clear on, on till? So I made like one post where I explained how I worked on something. And people loved it. They, everyone loved it. It was like, oh my God, yes. Can you, can you do this for Chassis 5? Can you do this for Beethoven 3? And I was like, yeah, yeah, I can. And I realized very quickly that through the process of making those posts and analyzing how I actually was working on that stuff, it was making me more efficient in the practice room. It was making me have better practice sessions, think with more intent on what I was working on. It was streamlining my own practice. Mm-hmm. So uh, the the in-between-the-lines text here is everything you see on Kate Warren Music is stuff that I'm working on. <laughs> Mm-hmm. If, if I post about trying to be more efficient in the practice room, it's because I've met a crux of needing to be more efficient in the practice room. If I'm talking about low range, like I, my last post a couple, yesterday was about working on my low range. It's because I'm working on my low range. <laughs> and and when people when people send in requests, I still do them. But it, it helps me really hone in and narrow on what I'm thinking of when I'm playing. And evidently that seems to be very helpful for others too, which is a nice perk. Yeah, that's great. So a little personal accountability, but also sharing what you found, which I think is awesome. And uh, so if people want to check out your 
accounts or your website, or, you know, maybe they want to check out your research and that sort of thing. Can you just give us a quick spiel of all your little tags to share with everybody who's listening? Yeah, it's all Kate Warren music at Kate Warren music on pretty much anything and www.katewarrenmusic.com. Consistency. I love it. Yes, <laughs> that's great. It makes it easier to find you in that way. And I guess um, my last question for you today, um, I try to end things on a very positive note. Um, so this can be in your personal life or your professional life and or if it, they're related. Um, but what is something that you are looking forward to? I'm actually looking forward to taking a bit of a break. <laughs> I, I just finished this really big project for Khan and Selmer, writing a year-long beginner horn curriculum. Mm. Uh, wrote the curriculum from scratch, from you don't know how to do anything in the music to you are at a beginning level competent at playing the French horn. They flew me out to Colorado. We filmed it all in early January. I made all the, the handouts and the supplemental materials and the PowerPoints, and it, it took the last three months of my life, and it's finally about to be done, and I'm really looking forward to taking a brief break. <laughs> Yay, that's awesome. Yes, breaks are healthy. Breaks are good. Everybody should be taking breaks. Yes. As, as much as I love the hustle and doing things and working, I call them Kate projects. And as any passion project I do is a Kate project. As much as I love the Kate projects, I also love taking a step back and, and reconnecting with who I am and what I do outside of music. That, that's something that's really important to me is being more than just a musician or just a French horn player. Absolutely. Yes, absolutely. Kate, I want to thank you so much for giving us your time today and talking about your life and your research and all the wonderful projects that you are working on. It was so great talking with you and, you know, getting on our soapbox about these issues because they are important to have these conversations and to continue throwing them out there into the world. So thanks again. Yes, thank, thank you for having me. This has been a fantastic conversation.